basically, what is the notion of truth that we would be be working with here? So I think you, know, if if what you're Let's saying, just hammer you know, that out is, real quick. excited to be joined by a special guest, um, Owen Aldrit. Hey, Owen, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, welcome. Strong name. <laughs> Strong name. <laughs> Owen is a PhD student at Emory, working on ethics, primarily questions surrounding moral relativism, um, but recently wrote an interesting blog post about Plato's Republic that we thought would be interesting to um, at least something, something, themes related to that include in our discussion of Plato today. So I'm introducing the second installment of our series called What is Utopia? And um, I picked out a couple selections from books one, four, five, and seven from Plato's Republic. And I'm going to say, I think, what the three main themes are and how it connects to our discussion of utopia and then I want to hear what you all all think. So the first point I think maybe is for me to wax a little poetic about Plato. I really love love, yes I I really love Plato and he does put me into a, a poetic mood and it's because I think like many political philosophers that all of the problems uh, modern innovations uh, included or at least the basis for even our modern innovations in political philosophy are basically to be found in the Republic. So everything, so in book one, he gets a lot going and um, even themes like group identity and inclusion and so on are already here in his dialogue with Polymarchus. Plato very quickly removes the idea that we can, um, that justice is being kind to one's friends and giving them what they are due and oppositional to one's enemies. So from the beginning, a certain kind of tribalism is is ruled out by Plato, but it is indeed there. And um, I'll get to the more famous dialogue about with Thrasymachus, because I think that's the most famous one. But I want to point out that um, the dialogue with Cephalus is important because Cephalus is like, there's this older man, they're in his house, there's this group of young guys, they're, they're friends, and Cephalus is like the grandfather, and he comes in, and Socrates has this conversation with him, you know, are you still having sex at your age, and so on and so forth. And Normal he, things asked at the norm, party. <laughs> normal things. Um, but I think the symbolism attached to the dialogue with Cephalus is that Cephalus is the embodiment of the conventional. He leaves to continue go making his sacrifices to the gods. And so what brackets the conversation around the Republic is that there is this opposition to convention as the basis for justice. And I think once Plato build his, builds his argument about what justice is, you can see that the idea of justice 
and what we might call um, the ideal republic or utopia is explicitly in contrast to the, the conventional. And that's part of how we start thinking about utopia um, in the tradition of Western political philosophy. Thrasymachus is the more famous introduction to the topic of justice because Thrasymachus offers Socrates a definition of justice that is simply the advantage of the stronger. And I think this is called uh, the power reduction. Um, and this should sound familiar. So even if more contemporary philosophers don't put it this way, it should sound familiar to people who are fan modernists such as Hobbes, postmodernists or post-structuralists such as Foucault, and maybe even on some interpretations, Marx. And Plato argues that justice is not power alone. It requires knowledge and reflection, and specifically of the good in itself. And attaining knowledge of the good is a virtue, and injustice is a vice. And so the whole dialogue is around a good way of life versus a tyrannical way of life, which would be a life that is not reflecting upon the good. And then the next main theme is that there is a resonance between the type of regime in which people live and the character of the people within it. And I think that this is something that is resonates widely today in Republican or liberal or democratic political theory, where we think that the, the type of society that we live is going to have to have a kind of person that supports it. So if you want a democracy, you need a democratic ethos. Um, if you want a republic, you need a, a conception of civic obligation um, and citizenship. And then authoritarian states likewise are going to create an authoritarian ethos in which people become increasingly governable. So there's an analogy between the city and the soul of the individual. And then the question is, what, who has to govern the city in order to have the city be rightly ordered and therefore to rightly order the souls of the individuals? And then the next conversation that Plato has that I think is the most sustained throughout the Republic is with Glaucon, which is he is the symbol of the spirited person, the person governed by Thumos. And um, he is somebody who seeks honor, and he is the person that needs to be tempered or moderated in the good city. His impulses cannot be the ones that govern the city. And I think it's important that this part is important because when we think about the question of utopia and where this whole dialogue ends, we often think about utopia and the idea of the good in itself as being something that's totally detached from reality. And there's some basis for that in the text. But at the same time, Plato is so preoccupied with controlling and ch properly channeling a person like Glaucon into the right channels to make him well-ordered, to balance him out. And so for Plato, there's no abolishing the negative instincts or these kind of like ill-tempered instincts within um, the human soul. And so in that sense, it's a confrontation with reality and not a denial of it. And the only way, I think famously, and I'll just close it out here because there's so much to say, the famous allegory of the cave, the divided line, and so on and so forth. And if you're a philosopher or have taken a philosophy class, those will be familiar and the others can bring them up. But there is this idea that the person who loves wisdom, and this is a matter of having the correct passions, um, is the person who is able to guide the city and specifically the philosopher. And so the philosopher needs to be trained to be able to govern and to rule, despite the fact that they don't actually want to. It's in the best interests of, 
of the whole. And um, the philosopher loves all of the good, not only part of it. And that is what utopia it is like. It is correctly ordered passions throughout the city as a whole. And I will leave it there. What do you guys think? I think the first thing I want to jump in with that you said, um, that kind of you know, lit a light bulb in my mind, because I, I guess it's been a while since I had read The Republic. So um, in my memory, I had always thought that the notion of the city, that you know, it was just basically you know, um, Socrates saying, well, if we're going to figure out you know, how to order an individual soul, that, you know, that's too minute. So let's, like, let's blow it up. And, you know, we're just going to do an argument by analogy. But what you said there was actually more precise. It's not just a republic is an argument by analogy. It's actually that there is a relay, a connection between the correctly ordered soul and the correctly ordered city. So it's not just that the city is used as like, we're just going to do this because it's easier to talk about because it's bigger. But it's the notion that, you know, if you're going to have a well-ordered city, that's going to require disposition of those who live in the city that is constant it harmonious with you know, um, the characteristics uh, of that republic and so what I thought was really interesting because you you know you bring up the idea of whether it's a liberal polis or Republican polis or authoritarian polis is that you know given recent conversations that have happened it seems you know most of us want to get away from a notion of like the common good but you know it would seem that you know in the Republic even if you think something like liberalism gets you away from that you still want to cultivate a type of disposition a liberal disposition that we hold in common. And so the city becomes disordered insofar as myriad dispositions inhabit this common space. And we no longer have a ground through which we can even understand our disagreements, our characteristic you know, approach to questions like justice, et cetera. So I just thought we could just jump in and say, like, you know, what is this argument between you know, the, the, the consonance of disposition and the republic? Because I hadn't read it like that before, but when you said that, that actually makes this argument much stronger rather than you know, him being like, I don't know, it's really tough to look at small things. Let's look at big <laughs> things instead. Yeah, dude, I just feel like it is a strong argument. I'm like, I feel like every time I'm like a baby again, I'm like, Plato might be right. What am I going to do? <laughs> it's like returning home, honestly. I'm like, oh, my God, someone did it. All right. <laughs> There's even like a kind of interesting methodological like moment that happens somewhere in book four, I think, where they're having a discussion about what these four characteristics of a well-ordered city would have to have, uh, the sort of features of a well-ordered soul or polis, and it's what, like courage, wisdom, moderation, and justice. Um, and then they even say something it's like- Soberness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, moderation. It's so yeah, moderation, sofra, yeah. Sofrasune, temperance. Sofrasune, yeah. Uh, um, and like, but there's a kind of interesting- like methodological dialectic where it's like, if we can recognize this characteristic seems like it fits at the level of a soul, what happens when we try to extrapolate from that and think about what it looks like at the city? And if that works, then we're onto something. And if it doesn't, well, then we might need to return back to our, our soul analysis and see if maybe we've taken mm -hmm. a wrong step. There's a kind of going back and forth between these levels in an attempt to clarify for ourselves what the right way to understand these, these virtuous characteristics are which I just think is really mm -hmm. fascinating. And while we're like staying at the beginning, at least at a level of generality, I also want to say something I liked about the way you introduced this, Lillian, which is that, you know, there is a tendency to associate Plato and Platonic thinking with a level of abstraction that privileges that abstraction over all else, right? And so the way you put it was that what he's staging here is a confrontation with reality, right? Not a denial of it. 
And I was so, so much more struck on this reading of The Republic. It's also been a while since I've read it on just how much attention and care is given to governmental questions, mm-hmm. right? Because there's yeah. a tendency, you know, the way I always remember, like, the, the myth of the cave is like, okay, cool, like, you go out and you see the light and you get to see the good and you get to now, you know, you get to now access knowledge and you learn, you know, through education, you're, you know, these uh, various different truth-seeking and truth-pursuing uh, uh, capacities are cultivated, et cetera. And I, I, I just didn't put as much emphasis on the fact that, no, no, but you have to be, like, forced to go back down now and, like, get the world in order, right? And so, like, part of my mind is like, well, wait, why... Maybe there's a kind of lazy thinking about Plato that settles in in your mind where I'm like, yeah, no, probably the best thing is just to like get out, get out of that cave, get up there and just chill with the wisdom. You know what I mean? Like just, just soak contemplate in. contemplate forms, so, Exactly. Man. Contemplate forms. Soak in the good. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you get access to that. You now have to be forced back like you, into a confrontation with reality, like you said, Lillian, right? To start shaping it to, yeah, especially the dispositions of, of subjects. And you're not going to make people stop having these, like, intemperate behavior. Like, that's what's interesting. Is yeah. He doesn't think that you can actually change human nature. Like, this is all going to go on. You have to, like, con- channel it ap- appropriately. You're not going to make perfect people. You're going to arrange them correctly. Stay in their lane. They're well ordered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it seems, it seems as if part of what the Republic is doing is, you know, how do you create a well-ordered city given that, you know, all of its parts have, you know, some type of imperfection to them? And so how do you harmonize imperfection with, you know, uh, uh, with one another such that, you know, they neither overpower each other, but that there is something that unifies them together and that that's something that is, you know, really difficult for Socrates to finally get out is whatever we mean by justice, that this is what justice is going to demand of us. And so what you have here is, you know, uh, on one hand, you, know, you could read Plato, um, a Plato's Republic, as a sort of ethical document, but it also seems to be a, a sort of pro-document of statecraft yeah. mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. and, and trying to you know, really understand what are these complex relationships that happen with um, individuals of different dispositions and how can you bring them together. That seems to be also what's going with the cave of, you know, actually, when you go back down, you're not greeted as a hero as a savior you know uh he even like goes so far like i don't know if it'd be that bad but that you might even be threatened with death trying to get these people to stop looking at the shadows i'm like is it really that bad down there like but you know i but on the other hand i think that there is something to this and that you know um just to bring in some of what i do you um du bois draws on the allegory of the cave when um in his early period the talented 10th and he's trying to understand so how what is the relationship between the rulers and the rule between the leaders and the lead and it is not necessarily an organic relationship Mm. you know it is you know it can be an incredibly fractious relationship that requires constantly alternating one's vision so what's very fascinating with the cave is that you go up to the sun and you have a hard time seeing but then once you get used to it you actually have a hard time understanding those that were in the cave because your eyes can't adjust to the shadows again and so you know there's this constant movement back and forth between these you know imperfect elements and how they can be brought into some sort of stable harmony. I think it's interesting that the one of the first arts, to use that translation of the term, uh, that we talk about in the Republic is the kind of shepherding, right? Shepherding in that shepherding requires us to be responsive to the needs of a particular kind of thing and therefore responsive to 
something that's living, something that's becoming, uh, in, in mm-hmm. to use the term more familiar to Plato, right? And I think that we have to think that coming back down into the cave, being a ruler, means being responsive to something, hmm. to an organic whole that has specific needs in the way that shepherding has a certain kind of, as an art, isn't simply just a matter of, you know, to take up Plato's specific, what he's specifically trying to drive us away from. It's not simply a matter of applying mathematical rules, but instead of being mm-hmm. responsive to a set of needs. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot is, especially going back through book one and rereading it with you all, um, is the way that the analogies that Socrates picks out in book one draws to the idea of asking us, well, what counts as a city? What counts as an actual city as a unity rather than simply a collection of particular interests the way that Thrasymachus would have us understand that a city is, right? Just responding to the particular interests of people that happen to be thus and so, right? Just for presumably for your own particular advantage. It seems like in book one, we're getting drawn away from that image um, Mm. and towards the image of what actually constitutes a city such that we can even call it a city. Mm -hmm. Um, In one of the sections that we didn't read, just to finish out this thought, where there's a point where uh, Socrates asks, well, isn't it true that most of the things we call cities aren't cities at all, but rather there's two cities, right? There's the city of the rich And then there's the city of the poor. And we can't even properly use the term city to refer to it because it doesn't have any kind of unity that's proper to it. I think that this is just building off of William's comments about like, oh, when we go back down, we still have to be responsive to the people that are still there. It's not simply a matter of, you know, taking some sort of ruler or something and holding them up against it. That's just not the the analogy at all, right? Yeah, there's an art of government. The shepherding is an art of government, yeah. Right. Yeah, but this is also Thrasymachus, like, yeah. you know, he's got such a good line on this, right? Which is to say that, like, oh, sure, you know, Socrates, you've got this really lovely idea about, like, ruling being this responsive thing, attending to the needs of those who are going to be governed, as though the shepherds are doing this for the sake of right. the sheep and not, like, because at the end of this, we're getting some wool and sheep meat or whatever out of it. Like, this is, in mm-hmm. fact, a kind of exploitative <laughs> relationship. Like, I'm always struck by these like the force of like the Thrasymachian line in moments like this, right? Of course, he defines justice as the advantage of the stronger and Socrates manages to trap him by like pointing out that that's in conflict with also justice being about obeying the laws, but what if the laws are not actually in the interests of the rulers or what have you? And it's like, yeah, that's true. That's a nice trap, but uh, I don't know. You know, look around. Oh, wow. <laughs> Gil is not convinced. Like, cool, logical move, bro. Yeah, no, it's a nice, tra- <laughs> nice little dialectical trap. It's a cool little, you know. But, but no, I think that, like, the, the Thrasymachian challenge is, like, a really powerful one, right? Um, I'm reminded, too, there's, like, a mm. line from Rousseau's got a text. It's, like, an unfinished manuscript called The State of War, which is, like, an early draft of what would become the social contract. And he starts out by being, like, 
man, I read all these books of like political and moral philosophy and I'm like, oh, sweet. This is so, wow, justice is like the right ordering of the polis and everyone's got civic virtues. And through like the democratic organization of the general will, we shall contribute to the progress of all. It's like, wow, thank God. I know what my rights are. I know my duties. I got my job. I feel comfortable. So like, then I close the book and go outside and I'm just like, oh, wait, no. It's the rich like stepping on the throats of the poor with the law. You know, it's bloody warfare everywhere calling it. <laughs> self-justice and this is sort of Thrasymachus's challenge I think there's something to it there's like a real politique to it that I think is you know kind of powerful yeah I mean I think the attempt to refute the idea of the right right of the strongest is like the story of political philosophy right the attempt to at least to grapple with the right of the strongest then there are some that just don't grapple with it right like that's Machiavelli that's even Spinoza who says that right is imminent to power and so, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it's worth noting that that is it is the initiation of a debate that I think is still as forceful as as it's ever been. I think it's as forceful. And, and I actually think that um, we had a little before we started recording the episode, there was like a minor discussion about, you know, like defending Thrasymachus as having been short shafted in the history of philosophy. I, I think this is not true. I think Plato's the underdog. I don't think people <laughs> usually defend this. Nice. Um, mm. and like, I like, okay. So, and, but interestingly, do you mean philosophers or people? <laughs> right? like, both. <laughs> like, both. I, I okay. don't think I put, yeah. like, I don't think justice in itself is like something that in modern political <laughs> philosophy is I mean, like even, even liberal political philosophy, what you're doing fundamentally is you're admitting that you can't achieve just like this is Jerry Cohen's critique of Rawls. Like you are admitting that you cannot actually attain justice. Because the whole mm. point is for you to manage inequality and mm-hmm. what justice requires is absolute equality. So you're not talking about justice. You're talking about something short of justice. Technocratic managerialism. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that's it's and, a, and a you mouthful, notice, but yeah. <laughs> people don't take Cohen seriously on this point. People love Rawls. So like there's this, um, you know, I think that it's worth just being like, I'm not sure Plato is the one that is... I don't know, maybe that's impressionistic. Yeah. But the, the other thing I wanted to say is that I think what's interesting about Plato is that there is when we talk about the rich and the poor, he's so conscious of the class problem and he wants to find a solution that is not tyrannical, that is ju- that is not democratic either. The rightful ordering of the passions is within the ruling class. And I think that is an amazing fact to consider because I actually think that is mostly what we are also talking about in modern political yeah. philosophy. Okay. Uh, I know Owen's going to say something, but I ahead, also Ed. really want to jump in. So, okay, let's stick with the Thrasymachus point. And also, I love the idea. Let's just take the line that, you know, this text is like almost the inauguration of political philosophy, of the question of can justice stand a chance if it really is the case that <laughs> the strong get to decide? And it is not as if we've had, we've come up with a well no let me actually finish my thought because I was going to say it's not as if we come up with a convincing answer uh, to this so my question is what would it mean to refute Thrasymachus so on the one hand you might think a refutation of Thrasymachus is to hoist him on his own petard show him that he's actually in contradiction with himself given you know other commitments he's made previous in the speech so on the one hand you can kind of see Plato playing with this idea where he has Thrasymachus eventually sort of giving in saying it is as you say but of course constantly noting that Thrasymachus thinks that this is bullshit you know (laughs) but he knows he did say those things and he can't squirm out of it 
Another way of refuting him would be something like, well, actually, Thrasymachus, what you're describing, it fails insofar as you don't, you're not even, this is more of Owen's point, you're not even describing a city. You're, you're yeah. describing, sure, sure, some organization of, of you know, human beings, but we wouldn't call that a city. And so you're actually missing the stakes of the question. Nice. The, the third way that I can think of you know, refuting Thrasymachus is to show that you know, even if Thrasymachus is describing a city, what he is describing is practically not effective, that it will end up undoing itself mm -hmm. in reality. And so there are three ways I think you could respond. Actually... Your, your argument is, you know, unsound and contradictory. Actually, you know, you've made a category mistake and you're not describing a city. You're describing something that has nothing to do with politics proper or what you are doing, if it were actually put in, into play, would end up undoing itself. Because, and I, and, you know, I think sometimes Socrates starts hedging there where not being responsive to the ruled actually puts the ruler in danger. And so whatever the ruler's you know, feelings about the ruled may be, and we can't quite control that, if they are rather explicit that this is simply about fattening up the sheep in order to <laughs> take their wool and eat sheep meat. I like that Gil said sheep meat because uh, I, I don't know. eat sheep. Yeah, so I like, uh, I, it's just like, oh, like weirded me out. <laughs> but if the sheep you know, figure this out, then they might think that this is not a good deal for us. And so there might be a sort of practical argument of saying that this disorder, the bill will come due even for the rule or the rulers. And so I, I wonder if it's, in, it's uh, helpful to disaggregate that if we're talking about this is one of the central political philosophy questions of what would it mean to refute this argument? You know, what are the criteria we, we mean to bring to the table in order to say that, you know, it isn't really just, you know, might makes right? So... I'll put my cards on the table with that, which is I think that William really uh, outlines that perfectly. And I think that this time through the Republic and, and the stuff I've been thinking about recently, I think it's a combination of, of the second way and the third way that, that he's described that relates them, right? Which is, I want to talk about something briefly that Owen was also talking about, and Gill, for that matter, uh, which is maybe like the split that we think comes out in normative and descriptive in uh, the Republic between the actuality of politics and the reality of politics. Mm. I've convinced myself, at the very least, at this point, that Plato's argument here and Socrates' argument uh, relies on the idea that, and I think this was in Will, what Will was saying, Thrasymachus's definition of justice, or later on, uh, the art of injustice, right? He says injustice is an art and not justice, um, is parasitic upon the idea of the city as a real unity. Mm. Um, and so not only is there a real unity that we're talking about, but it matters that there's a real unity that we're talking about because the tyrant, for example, takes advantage of the uh, elements of the real city while perhaps not even recognizing that he's doing so. So, for example, I think that uh, this comes out in his conversation in the end of book one, right, um, where he's, we're talking about the band of thieves, right? Um, and Socrates forces Thrasymachus to admit that justice has to be at work, even in the band mm -hmm. of thieves, mm -hmm. insofar as they're a band of thieves <laughs> that are acting mm -hmm. in concert. If they really were totally unjust, they wouldn't even be able to coordinate with one another enough to commit the injustice. And I think that that's what we have to carry through into the picture of the city of words, right? The idea is 
maybe, maybe we think that this is just a perfect city, a castle in the air. But on the other hand, there's something about this city which is operative in everything that even looks like a city, such that we even call it a city, right? That is, the functions that we identify in the city have to be at work <laughs> at all in order for us to get something like the tyrant off of the ground. So it's not just a picture of an ideal state, some sort of normative depiction, but instead there's a marriage of the descriptive and the normative in the picture of the city as an actual unity um, that Thrasymachus is trying to elide. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, this is so cool. This this confirms my like suspicions about the primacy of the practical, even in the most like <laughs> metaphysical of texts. I feel this way about the ethics. I feel about the critique of pure reason, like about <laughs> the science of logic, that there is a a scaffolding of metaphysical and logical arguments, right, that are supported ultimately by a set of pragmatic concerns as a, as a series of practical questions and practical problems that are being grappled with. I just, li I like that account a lot, Owen. Yeah. What I also really loved about it is it is, it is a way of hoisting Thrasymachus on Spatari, which is not necessarily the same thing as saying Thrasymachus is lost. I mean, so right. like, you know, I take right. you know, Gil's mm -hmm. point. I go outside in the world and boy, it really looks like Thrasymachus won, <laughs> but you know, that's a question we could deal with a little bit later, but it's a way of hoisting Thrasymachus gets on his own petard that's not simply clever. In other words, mm -hmm. in order for Thrasymachus to get this notion of the art of injustice off the ground, I love what Owen was saying, is actually presupposing that at least Socrates is right in some sense about this unity called the city. And so what I think is really important there, and the, the reason why this is in the, the What is Utopia series, is that this is a way of describing utopia as, you know, an imminent necessity for describing, you know, particular social formations. And so it's not as if you can simply disavow it. Then if you simply disavow, if you disavow the, the notion of the city, then we're not talking about politics anymore. We're talking about something that whatever you want to bring to won't even get going in the first place. And so it is not, you know, as I was a castle in the air is saying what are these features that are imminently necessary for us to even get this conversation going and that is still apart from the question of whether we can realize the perfect city is only to say that we cannot get away from presupposing drawing on this notion of the city in order to give our reasons to one another and even the art of injustice requires giving reasons <laughs> You're, you are saying things to people, you know, it, it, it can only be brute force because I think Thrasymachus understands that if it's too overt and obvious, then this actually tends to subvert the very thing that the strongest want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that like idea of the real unity being presupposed uh, of the city or of the soul comes up at some point because, you know, whatever else we might agree or disagree about the nature of justice, at some point in the discussion with, with Thrasymachus, Socrates says something like, well, look, can't you at least agree with me that like injustice causes discord, right? It causes, it gives rise to dissension, internal conflicts. I think civil war, I think Stasis comes up there. Yeah, Stasis, yeah. And he says like this makes it impossible for any group. And he says there uh, a city, a family, an army, anything of the like to act as a unity to act as a unity. Like injustice is something that prevents that from happening. And then he says- It obstructs this, cooperation. It obstructs cooperation. But then he even says, same goes for an individual, right? Like injustice makes an individual divided against themselves. 
such that the unity of the soul is compromised in and through like you know injustice participation in injustice so like even then if that's the minimal condition that you can get Thrasymachus to agree to and at this point Thrasymachus has been thoroughly bullied so he's just like yeah I don't want to argue anymore <laughs> sure man he's, he's blushing what? he's sweating he's blushing he's sweating a lot you know but you know I think that that's I love the political he, sweaty he, yeah, he's, he's sweaty. that he's that gif of of Jordan Peele just sweating yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's I think a minimal enough condition to be able to, even through Symmachus I think without just giving in would buy that like injustice is the thing that causes discord and that from there we can sort of read a negative outline justice being something about like the orderliness of the functions of a disparate multiplicitous whole that allows it to attain to a certain kind of unity right this being a kind of yeah negative reversal I like that maybe we could grant some some critical purchase to what Thrasymachus is saying here, right? Because when I was reading it this time, I was like, damn, this is, you can see so much of like what the Marxist critique of the state is, for example, right? It's that yeah. there are these liberal norms being presented as like neutral arbiters of conflict, as sources of justice. But in actual fact, this is what Marx says at the beginning of the Grunrisse, like, it's just the right of the stronger, but with a more ideologically obfuscated, complicated story about like universal rights that don't actually end up having universal purchase and they end up actually being quite restricted to a particular class of, of people, right? And so like, and the same, Foucault does a similar thing in um, like in Society Must Be Defended lectures where he says that all of these terms, the terms of like, you know, uh, the good justice, right? They were meant to, you know, make it appear as if we were in the presence of social peace, but they're actually just apparatuses of war, class war, race war, um, all these things. And so like, maybe we could give Thrasymachus's argument here um, and we could redeem it at least as a kind of critical lens through which to view claims to justice, right? That oftentimes they are actually, and maybe we should say most of the time, God, maybe in history, like, I don't know, all the time. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> most of the time, the, the, they, 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 are, they are actually, like, just nice verbal obfuscations of relationships of domination that legitimate those relationships. Hmm. Yeah, I think that the at least the way that I've been reading the first the first book, at the very least, is when we actually have other interlocutors and it isn't just Glaucon <laughs> being like, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah, is yeah, as yeah. you say. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. It is as you say. Well, of course. Yeah. Um, is that we have to think that if if we think that Socrates is right, going with that for a moment, we have to think Cephalus is right. We have to think Polemarchus is right. We have to think Thrasymachus is right. Because there's, because none of them, as it says in the in uh, the Republic itself, you know, none of them just get it completely mm -hmm. wrong. That would, wouldn't make any sense at all. It's not as though we have two positions. Because I think in the first book, I'll just say this. In the first book, we're constantly presented with these points where um, if we... I think aren't going along, aren't trying to follow the internal logic of what Plato's presenting us with, then we, we're constantly presented with these points where we think maybe, oh, well, I'm presented with two equally plausible options and I can just choose one. <laughs> yeah. I can just choose mm -hmm. Cephalus's mm -hmm. or I can mm -hmm. just choose Socrates's. I can just choose Thrasymachus's or I can just choose Socrates's. And I think that the point is that instead, and this is partially what we get later on in our reading from um, in book seven, right, about the idea of the dialectic, the in, that the internal structure of each of these interlocutors, their argument is supposed to draw us out into something broader and bigger. Yeah. So there's got to be something right about Thrasymachus is saying, and there's got to be something right 
about that this is something that people can actually do in a way that's obvious to us when we look at the world, but it's a way that people can take advantage of the city necessarily by virtue of what the city is. It's not like mm. you could make a city that was completely insulated from the possibility of tyranny, right? So, so I think that Thrasymachus has to be right, at, uh, but the question is, how yeah, right? at what level? Yeah, exactly. that's a super, super helpful mm-hmm. point, actually. Is it, is it Polymarchus that says that um, it's justice is giving to each their due or something? Is that his? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And we're so already that, that, there, right? Yeah, so that, that like, it's always seemed to me that that never disappears. It keeps reappearing throughout the conversation of justice throughout the Republic, right? It, the idea that people are born with a certain soul that they're naturally fitted to, well, like, to give them their due, their position and their function within the social totality, like, that's a part of justice. And same with, like, the, the discussion of stasis and polemos, like war, polemos against foreigners or barbarians, and stasis, which is like war against uh, against Greeks. You know, he's very clear that you know you should give to the Greeks their due. I mean, a just war <laughs> against a just civil war, basically, is one that doesn't burn all the all the Greeks like crops or whatever. He says that most you should maybe take their their one like harvest away. <laughs> right? Like you shouldn't you shouldn't destroy. But that's just like a to little give, starvation as a yeah, treat. Like, <laughs> but I, I just think I mean I could talk about that conversation. I think the conversation of stasis and Polemos is so rich and funny, but like I, I, there you see again the reappearance just to pick up on what you were saying, Owen, like the, it, it's not that the idea of giving to each their due is wrong, it's that it has to be subjected to this dialectical process of unfolding the principle of justice that the book does, you know? Okay, but I want to I actually pick up on a point that uh, Lillian made in the introduction about what these various thinkers sort of represent in the dialogue form and Cephalus being the representative of convention. And then the discussion, the whole discussion really of the Republic taking place like once we've bracketed convention, right? Because Thrasymachus seems to me to actually like serve a similar function, right? Insofar as one way of making the claim, uh, the Thrasymachian challenge is as like, you know, like we've been saying that our ideas, our received ideas about things like justice is really just ideological obfuscation. And that's a problem, not just because Socrates thinks it's like a bad definition, he does, but because it actually kind of calls into question precisely that dialectical process, Owen, that you were just describing. Mm. Because the whole Elentius, right, is like, like you said, other Owen, my God, no. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, Owen A. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Um, but um, please, uh, please, no. We have to take. No, we have to take all of the interlocutors seriously as partially expressing something true, at least. And Socrates, of course, you know, Thrasymachus chides him for this. He's like, of course, here he comes. The guy never says what he fucking thinks. He's just going to ask questions and sort of undermine, you know. But, like, the reason that this dialogue takes this form, in all of the platonic dialogues, really, is because there is a a kernel of truth that can be excavated in the process of Mm -hmm. dialectical questioning. But if it's ideological mystification all the way down, maybe that's not true. You know, maybe when we all think mm-hmm. with Polymarchus, like, oh, it's each giving their, their due, like, yeah, and we're going to pick up, pick this up and run with it. Like, what if he was wrong, actually? And there was no grain of truth to that, right? Like, this kind of calls into the question the entire Socratic project. Well, Plato would have put it, wouldn't have put it in. <laughs> <laughs> we love an appeal to authority. Yeah, 100%. Like, love a good, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. if it weren't true, Plato wouldn't but have Plato, written it. So, yeah, like, so it's like so really ergo. weird what's going on here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, no. That's not, yeah. Just like to finish the thought, that's why I think that um, for exactly that reason, like you have to first bracket convention, but then you also have to bracket that idea. They mm. have to bracket the Thrasymachian idea of there actually maybe not being even a grain of truth to the position. So. 
Hmm. And then we can build the Calipolis, you know? Okay, so a couple of things that, that I, I would wonder about this. Um, so basically, what is the notion of truth that we would be, be working with here? <laughs> so I think you know, if, if what you're Let's saying Let's just hammer you know, that out is, real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just like when I'm talking for the next 30 seconds, just gonna like Ruth. get get truth done. Heidegger can go to bed. I got it. And we didn't lose it or anything like that. So we could look at truth as you know what you know what you were saying is you know what if Plato who wrote this text what if he's just you know, made an epistemic mistake? Like it turns out he was just duped, and that's not the way things are. But, you know, it seems to me that, you know, if, if uh, Owen, OG, is right, that there are practical stakes to this, then, you know, there's another version of truth, which is, you know, what are the conditions of possibility for us to think of anything like a, a, a city? And so could we think of anything like a city, anything like any sort of um, or, um, organic social totality or whole? I love that language, a, a sort of whole. Could we think that if we actually uh, um, admitted the idea that perhaps, you know, there's just you know ideology all the way down. It would seem as if you know we wouldn't even be able to start to you know engage in any sort of discussion mm -hmm. that is already presupposing there's something that we share that you know perhaps this you know what we share these norms they're very minimal. But in order for us to even do this, this is the truth we have to presuppose. And given that you know, this is you know imminent to our social action of how we coordinate with one another, it becomes for me almost immaterial whether you know that's not how the world actually is because this is what we do. This is how we make sense of ourselves. This is you know, how we become intelligible. And so it seems to me that maybe the, that, that would be a way of responding, which is you know, perhaps there's no way of saying you know, if the world you know, really does have this to be the case. It is really asking how, the, given the types of historical creatures we are, we could make this social activity of coordinating and world building intelligible to ourselves. And we'd have to bracket out this notion that it's ideology all the way down, but also we'd have to bracket out the idea that it is only convention. You know, because it would have to be, you know, us inserting ourselves into this activity and you're know, redefining it anew for us rather than it just being imposed from who knows where. Yeah, I think I think Gil uh, asks a really penetrating question, and I, I agree. I agree with William here about this sort of classic. I think classic sort of philosophical response of being like, "Oh, conditions of possibility." You know, I mean, there's no more uh, famous kind of jargony phrase that we ever. Sorry. Use. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm a hundred percent on board. I think it's I think it's the right direction to go with this. I, and I was thinking about this a lot. Um, recently going back through book one uh, in no small part because I was trying to figure out exactly what the Socrates response is to exactly the, the question that Gail asks, which is, why shouldn't we just think it's just a matter of, to use a phrase that remains in vogue as it was like 30 years ago, it, just a matter of sovereignty, of who makes the decision and therefore who sets the convention and therefore, who is has the greatest will to put it in kind of uh, faux Nietzschean terms? And I think that um, Socrates' response is to drag Thrasymachus, right, insofar as he has one, is to drag Thrasymachus back into Thrasymachus's concession that there is an art at all mm -hmm. um, to injustice, right, to getting your way. And he, I think, uh, at the end of book one, 
uh, tries to make the case that as long as we think of uh, the art that's proper to justice or injustice, whichever one we happen to be on at the time, as simply the art of getting your own way and keep it at this sort of second order, right? Where the second order in question is responsive to something else. It's responsive to what your way is, right? So it's simply this kind of second order question about how to best manipulate things such that things will work out for a set of ends. I think what Socrates tries to do is press Thrasymachus on exactly this and say, well, Thrasymachus, what are these ends? What are the determinate ends of the tyrant? Because then if we start asking what are the determinate ends of the tyrant and start answering that in a determinate way, we're back into this picture of art that uh, Socrates has been trying to impress upon us, where we're being responsive to something which isn't arbitrary in the way that we might think a will is arbitrary, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're responding to the world in a way, a way the world is. Maybe we're responding only to the way that the tyrant himself is, right? The specific needs that he has. Later on in the book, we'll learn that the tyrant does have specific needs and they're terrible and can't be fulfilled because they're totally, because he can't understand this about himself, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, he's always trying to outdo himself mm-hmm. as he's we talked about in well. book one. Exactly. He can never finish out. He can never mm-hmm. arrive at some state of perfection because there is no state of perfection. It's completely arbitrary. And so I think this is the way that Socrates tries to push us at the end of book one. He says, OK, Thrasymachus, if it's the art of getting your own way, what is the, the way in question? Because then once we start filling that out, then we start filling in conceptual content in a way which drags our conversation back to the questions of, you know, the classic ones, what is? Mm-hmm. And that means being responsive, Socrates thinks at least, to something that isn't simply the will. He wouldn't put that in, a, in that way, but something mm-hmm. arbitrary, let's say. The, mm-hmm. the arbitrary, what we might think of as the arbitrariness of particularity, maybe, in, in the case of the tyrant. Our tyrants do feel pretty arbitrary. I will, give, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I really like all of this, but you know, as I you know, as I'm finding myself thinking more and more about you know, so the way to read the book is that everyone brings something to the table, and what whatever Socrates' function is, sometimes it's not quite clear to me what his function is. You know, at some you know, I know when I was an undergrad, I was like, this is the guy who's going to give us the answers, right? But then <laughs> even in the text, the sermon is like, I've heard about you. You're you're not that guy. And so is is, is Socrates a, a shepherd? Is he a place of unity? Nice. But you know, basically my question is, so all of these characters, they bring something to the table. At the end of all of this, are we supposed to have a firm grasp on what the whole of justice is? You know, um, are we supposed to have like you know, um, a, a clear picture? Or are we supposed to have something like a method of, of what one would have to do in any given political situation, political context, to work out what justice would have to be? And, you know, I, I'm asking that because, you know, it seems to me that this isn't like a jigsaw puzzle where we just, like, put all of these characters together and then we have the whole of justice. And yet, 
there is supposed to be an effect here. There is supposed to be a notion. Maybe the notion that we're supposed to get is that justice is a whole, that justice and truth are indivisible to get us clear on, on this idea that we need to be thinking from the individual to the city in terms of wholeness rather than in terms of discrete parts you mash together. And then this you know, raises the political question of, so how do we come to understand you know, the, the, the social whole that we live in now? You know, and what are the play of forces? What, you know, how, how does Thrasymachus articulate in our current situation? And you know, what does it mean to get clear on you know, what justice would be for us here, no longer in ancient Greece? So I'm a bit confused on this because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the whole, and yet I don't think that if I just add Thrasymachus and Glaucon to, <laughs> and all these other characters together, I'm going to see it. And maybe it's because I'm, I'm not... I don't have the intellect. Maybe I'm, a, I'm such an empiricist I can't see it. I'm thinking about when he starts talking about, you know, between the, the vision and the intelligible. But, you know, something's supposed to be happening here, right? I don't know. This is maybe somewhat sideways of what you're saying, but the kernel of it that, like, I've been thinking about a lot recently is the relationship between the good and the true. And I, I think that's so important for, for... I mean, it's obviously very important for Plato, but it impresses itself on me because I think the reason that in 2022 it's very difficult to make this connection is simply that we no longer believe in the true and therefore we cannot see the good and for him we are just like shadow people you know what I mean Mm. we are like in the cave all the way down deep in the cave deep in the cave cave. we are deep deeply deep in the cave I'm bound (laughs) can't move my head right so like when he (laughs) says like repeatedly that to love wisdom is to love the whole of wisdom and not just a part. And then he has all of these ways of, of juxtaposing what it would mean to love a part versus the whole. So like you have the juxtaposition between being and becoming, essence and generation, intellection and opinion, science and belief, understanding and image thinking. And, and interestingly, like these aren't contrasts between true and false exactly. They're not a contrast between import like being and non-being. It's always being and becoming. So it's whether or not you're understanding the whole that's important. So everybody is going to get a part, but the whole is a you know it's more than the sum of its parts. And I think that like the thing that I find just like metaphysically provocative about this as a as a point of like just metaphysics and metaethics or whatever is that. I think there has to be something to this connection between the the true and the good. Like when I think about all the reasons, for example, that people have gotten rid of ideology critique, the strong, the most difficult part of reclaiming ideal ideology critique is that it is there. It is a posit that there's a normative criteria for why you are doing this. There are stakes to why there are ideology. Ideology mystifies. It's not just that it's false, it's that it mystifies oppression. It mystifies injustice, and that's why you should care about it. Without that, there is- It mystifies truth. Yeah, it mystifies truth, and truth has a relationship to justice. And like, I feel that like, for the most part, my intuitions about that, and I can't really defend it thoroughly, are like very strong because the opposite of it, this kind of like anti-realism about the relationship between truth and justice, I'm just really positive we're not getting at justice that that way. I, and like I don't feel like our ideology critiques are very strong because we no longer really believe there's something called ideology. And I think that's where the power reduction pushes you. And so whatever like 
you know, oh, cool. that the payoff of, of Plato, Plato's particular way of cashing this all out is and his model and his way of governance and the way he thinks about education and who should be in charge of it. Like that intuition, I think there are a lot of costs for letting that intuition go. And we are living with the costs of letting that intuition go. So even if I, if I'm not able to like make you agree with it, I think that like, that's a, a sticking point that's worth, even if you say you don't, that should haunt you that much of the dysfunction that we are experiencing is because we no longer think that's that's true in our you know like that's not our guiding yeah. intuition. I think that's so right, actually, and it's you can see it because so many of what we could like broadly construe as like critical enterprises engage in that first part that demystification, but without the robust conception of truth, right? Like, I just think that the best ideology critique I would assume would be the one that has not just a the not just the ability to show the falsity the mystification right but to, to show like well what to have a robust and this is where plato is still incredibly useful right to to have a robust conception of truth that gives salience to the mystification to what's being mystified and to like who it benefits why i should what, care what exactly is happening why i should care and yeah without without tying so you have some vague sense of like the good that is being done with critique right the good is like well there are these we assume there are these bad systems right that are doing bad things right they're hurting people but that conception of the good this is why i love what you're saying lily and like it, to whatever degree we're aware of it or not i think it is overly unmoored from a conception of truth that informs that notion of the good. Instead, the good is taken to be an implied set of norms a lot of the time, right? That mm. oppression is bad and, you know, um, suffering is bad. Or And we never actually work out what that relationship between the good <laughs> we have in view, in, of like, we have in view while we're doing the critiquing. And, like, it, it's truth or it's falsity or it's relationship to truth. It's, I, I don't know. I just really, really like that point. And I, I also think that this come, comes back to the, the idea that, you know, one, you're going to have a hard time getting any sort of project of justice off the ground if even implicitly you think that everything that happens is just arbitrary. That, you know, we can't actually make a claim to a sort of wholeness of truth. It's just people do things, who knows what their reasons are, and it just happens, or it's just, you know, it's all power conflict all the way down. There's no sort of any sort of mm -hmm. social logic to trace out, and even if you can trace it out, you know, it's better not to say the what world we want to see. Because to do that, it sounds like you're the tyrant, uh -oh. you're trying to impose your will, so it's better that we just live and let live. And so that we don't actually have a city. We just have a bunch of discrete particles, a bunch of parts that don't cohere into anything. And so our ideology critique is as aimed at, I just want to be left alone. <laughs> or there is no way of us coordinating. I mean, and so it's hard to know where this goes, and I get it, because once you start putting forward your sort of positive vision of saying, you know, here, here is you know, the, the understanding truth here, well, that opens you up to critiques, and then, you know, you have these noisy interlocutors bum-rushing in, drunk, blushing, and angry, <laughs> but, you know, what are the stakes of doing this if you don't have this notion of a whole to be one? And so the second point that I want to build, build off of that, that we get with Plato, you know, is the notion that we should be able to enunciate, you know, that's where I want to go. 
we should also, I'm thinking about the point with, you know, Jerry Cohen and roles, you know, also losing this, you know, is also a way of saying that we don't even think justice is possible. Right. And so what type of political practice emerges if you don't think justice is possible, that's arbitrary all the way down, that, you know, everyone has their own truth, it doesn't necessarily cohere, and then any notion of the good just breaks apart and all we have is simply just managing a rambling, you know, mode of dysfunction as falling apart. And, you know, I, I look at, you know, like climate change and I think so many people, that just seems to be where they are, they're at. They're just like, yeah, I mean, that's bad, but like, we don't have a common good, so what are we going to do? And, and so I think you have to have also, if you want to have a coherent political practice, there must be some notion that justice is possible. And that is more than simply managing dysfunction. It is, so what would be the conditions under which we could make sense of what would be, to go back to other Owens' you know, way of putting it, getting our way? But without that, I don't know what we have. I just think this is like so important. Like I've just started to like think about our current way of talking about politics is just like discursive anti-realism. And we all think there's a better and worse to this. There's, you know, but what we are mostly doing in the public sphere at the moment is like the right will say something that is obviously showing um, hatred of the poor or of black people or of migrants and then the other side says you are a bad person and we're going to show that you're a bad person which is also true probably um but like we there got has receipts yes we have receipts you are you seem reprehensible morally but like there isn't um you have to also be able to say that you are wrong about what you are saying and you and and like this is the actual problem and we are going to say that not only that your bad morality follows from the lack of true understanding. And like, I think that that connection, because we never talk about any, you know, like, it, it's just like free floating ideology, you know, so like, and, and I think that this is really that the consequence of that detachment, that, that, that severance of the link between truth and the good. If you believe that what you are saying is true, like, then it makes it a lot easier to argue for what is good. Like, it, it's because you say, wow, it's great because I'm right about this. And I can go into a debate and I can feel confident that I am armed by, like, both facts and a way of packaging those facts that is correct. And that might be, I don't know, I have a basic streak to me. I know that. But I, it's just, like, if you don't feel that way, then they're, they're all there is is just like dis discursive reification of terms and then you get lost and then you are disoriented and, and so on and, and so forth. It, it becomes doxa all the way down. Yes. But this is why yeah. like Socrates says in book seven when he's actually describing what the pedagogical or educative formative process should look like that like even amongst the really talented ones who are you know on track to become philosopher kings like don't start teaching them dialectic until they're like 30. Because if because the ones who get exposed to too young of an age without having cultivated a taste for actual truth, he calls it this mm. lawless, sophistical sort of debate uh, fetishism. I just think of like a Ben Shapiro, right? Totally. And it's like the yeah, we don't the know anything about that today. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you become a debate lord. You become a debate bro. Exactly. You're yeah, privileged. And you're resentful, and then we just do this. And then, we just yeah. do that forever. We and just do this. And at the end of the day, somebody appears more virtuous. Yeah, somebody appears more virtuous than the other person, but nothing has actually been 
resolved or shown. I, yeah. I want to pick out a specific epistemic point that I think is a through line through what William was saying and what Lillian was saying and, and definitely shows up in what Gil was saying, which is something that shows up in book one. And I know I'm the book one guy right now. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot. It's a good book. We love it. Uh, and uh, but also shows up later when we read the section about opinion. Yeah. Right. Uh, mm. Which we have. We've we kind of referenced obliquely. Um, but as a way of responding to um what I've been hearing, which is Socrates is really clear when he's when we're giving our sort of initial definition of art and sort of plodding through this idea of like, okay, all right, that knowing the worse also necessarily means knowing the better. And in fact, what Socrates claims is even more dramatic than that. It's not knowing two things. It's knowing one thing in two different ways. Mm. Um, and I think that this, to me, going back through the book this time, I was like shocked because this is something that I've been trying to kind of put together that I think was going beyond behind the scenes in the Republic. But, but to have Socrates be like, no, listen, what you have to understand is to know, like, for example, the art of shepherding is to know what's better and to know what's worse for the sheep. What's the relevance of this to what we've been talking about? Because I think that the idea is in any sort of assessment about what's going wrong, let's say with a given social body, there is necessarily what Socrates would have us believe at least, an implicit mm -hmm. positive yeah. vision. There has yeah. to be, otherwise it can't even be a real claim about something that's conceptually determinate in the way that we think that sheep are conceptually determinate, that is living things, or in the way we think shoes are conceptually determinate, that is things that we've made for a specific purpose. So either if it's a living thing or it's a thing that we've made for a specific function, um, making a claim about it means knowing the better and worse. Now, that's not true. Maybe Socrates would tell us for something like an atom or, you know, something like a rock. Um, but knowing, knowing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but knowing for sheep or for shoes or for the city, a claim about what's good is necessarily a claim about what's bad. They're not, they're not things that you can pull apart, which is what brings us later on to that epistemological picture, that puzzle, that in the senses we're constantly encountering things that are contradictory, that pull both ways, right? But we have to understand them as a unity. Otherwise, it will just be unintelligible. Absolutely. And yeah. if I can like piggyback on that and like connect the dot from way, way back at the beginning and maybe explain why this episode does belong in this series on utopia, right? That like there is an implied understanding of justice or of a right order or of a real city, even in like a minimal claim about injustice in each case, right? And this is something that I think we get quite robustly in these statements by Socrates, right? Like you can't tell me that you don't have some idea of what a rightly ordered city would be when you look around and say that's unjust, right? And that is like a kind of mm. critical lens. It's not just imagine. It's not just imagining, like you said, like a cool city in the sky. It's recognizing the real presuppositions that makes it possible for us to look around and identify injustice. I think that's exactly right. The question is then: is why do we not attend then specifically to what that that implies? I agree that it is implied in that critical gesture. Maybe why do we not attend? I mean, not all of us, but why in general do we not attend with the same acuity with just that notion of justice? I mean, because that's what the platonic project is. I wonder if it just like feels 
passe or something to, to just say, no, 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 we're actually just going to now, we're not going to, we're not going to leave it as an implied conception of an, an implied norm anymore. We're actually just going to go to work on the norm. And I, I don't know, maybe that's just the circles I'm in, but that there is a sense in which that is a kind of like passe or like gauche thing to do, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think, and I, I, I know we're, we're running a bit long, but this has been so fucking amazing. And so uh, I'll, I'll try to keep this short. I, my, my suspicion is that, you know, leaving it implicit means that you don't have to make it available for public contestation. Let's and go. Once you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> once you make it available for public contestation, then you know, this you know, this presupposition of truth that you're drawing upon, then you've got to defend it. You've got to give it determinate shape. You've got to you know mm-hmm. actually fill it out. But you know, if you just like go halfway, then people can say you know to, to be sort of contemporary about it. Oh, you're so cool. You're able to you know see, see that the thing was wrong, and we just like keep proliferating things that are wrong, but it's unclear. You know. What would it mean to resolve those things? Well, it's because it's easier to pick out what's wrong rather than to, to finish the claim that you're making, mm-hmm. which is by depicting something that's wrong, you're already on the way to depicting yeah. what you take to be you know, a proper ordering. But to do that, you know, that's why I made the, the, the joke about, you know, and then like drunk characters just barge in <laughs> and mess up the party. Well, it means you have to make yourself available. And this almost brings us full circle to what O and A was saying, which is it means you have to become responsive. You have to yeah. become responsible again. And that's terrifying. Can I add something to that? Yeah, I think there's another reason why we don't attend to it as much, which is that like, and maybe this is a more historical claim that I think the Soviet experience like broke our brains in a certain way, <laughs> and at least especially in philosophy, right? And maybe in some ways, rightly so. And or maybe that or it broke our brains, or it was weaponized. But there's a sense in which like giving determinate shape to like political visions is very quickly like folded into well, that's how totalitarianism happens. You set up a kind of like historical telos that we all then have to achieve. We're better off in the kind of deflated philosophical role of like critiquing in, yeah. you know, injustice here, but without ever actually working on justice, of like critiquing mystification over here, but without ever actually working on truth. I mean, it's almost the sense is that like, well, without justifying it on the epistemological plane, there's like an ethical claim about its safety. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, they're scary people, the ones who think they possess truth. Philosopher so kings, better to, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Philosopher yeah, 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 kings. Yeah. I mean, this yeah, is a point yeah. about utopian thinking, too, that I think, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, in summary, we are all a foot, <laughs> footnote to Plato, and yet we have disavowed him. It is true. So, anyway, that does it for us today. We'd once again like to thank Owen Aldrich for joining us. Owen, would you like to tell our audience where they can find you online and about anything you've got coming up? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you all for inviting me. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I'm on Twitter as at Aldrit Owen with two L's and two T's. And my Substack that I've been working on this little uh, Plato writing that I've been doing specifically about book one is called Moon Bear. You should go check it out. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. It's it's really great. Thank you. Thank you. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. And also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting this show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we are really grateful. Today's new patrons are Jeff Bailargan, Trails of Hoffman, Abe, James, Eleanor Allen, Omar, Joanna Berry, Julius Gehrig, Ludwig, 
Droche, Philip Blastic Britt, Robin Saroy, Charles Huff, Sky D, Seamus O'Connell, Emily Salamanca, Andrew Hull, David McFarlane, Hannah Johansson, Knife Dog. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, now going to include future episodes of our series and bonus videos. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us reviews and comments on your podcast app. Good ones, please. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Owen. Take care.